Begin transmission. Transmission. The Frontline Gaming Network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. The Frontline Gaming Network presenting Art of War with Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another wonderful Art of War podcast. I am your host, Nick Nanavati, and we are having a bit of a departure today from our usual. Mr. John Damaris, our, my normal co-host, is uh, doing stuff like being a good father to his son, so unfortunately he's not able to join us today. So it's just me and the robot himself, Mr. Richard Siegler. So I'm going to do my best to wear all the hats, intro you guys properly, not forget to do John's job, and then also ask the hard questions and the easy questions. I don't really know. We're going to wing it. So uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm the Tom Brady of 40K, as John Damaris loves to put it. So I guess ask me about that story, as he would say, if you're interested. And um, yeah, so Mr. Sieg's here is one of the most accomplished players in the world at Warhammer. He's came out of literally nowhere to win the ITC, Nova Open, Pro Tabletop, LVO, and a bunch of other stuff that I don't remember. And uh, he is avidly uh, a pioneer of some new builds, such as the, the Triple Riptide with Cyclic Ion Commander with two-man drone spam in 7th, or sorry, in 8th, then Broviathan, and now he's got some really cool Necron ideas he wants to share with us with the new Codex. So what's going on, Mr. Siegs? It's a pleasure to be here, Nick. Really enjoying my time uh, focusing on the Necrons now. I know a lot of people uh, were expecting me to continue with Tau, but unfortunately, Ninth Edition has not been too kind to the Tau. So um, I've been looking at other avenues. I've been experimenting with armies like Blood Angels, but with the new Necron Codex, I've really been having an exciting time playing them because they kind of, in some ways, replicate that old Tau style of Eighth, eighth Edition that I really mastered. So we'll get. I'm sure we'll get into that. But uh, why don't I go through the list first, and then we can start talking about it. That sounds great to me. All right, so here's what I'm working with so far. I've got, uh, up, up front, it's a single battalion, Novak, and I've got a Catacomb Command Barge. This one is loaded up with all the shooting works. So he's got the Gauss Cannon, he's got uh, the Voltaic Staff, so he can do some of those uh, extra exploding sixes and use the Tesla Strat for mortals. Then I have a second Catacomb Command Barge, this guy is going to be more melee-focused, and he is taking advantage of the Novak Relic, which gives him plus two attack uh, with his special War Scythe. So he's a beat stick, and then I also gave him the Warlord trait for reroll wounds in melee Eternal Madness. So he's a very, very strong melee late-game piece. And then finally, I have the classic Chronomancer. He's giving out that sweet five-up invuln and reroll charges um, to my uh, different units, in particular my Warriors. And he also has the relic for Veil of Darkness. Do a little bit of teleporting action later in the game, or even early game if my opponent uh, makes some deployment mistakes. Then I have my uh, Brick of 20 Warriors, pretty much the stock standard of what uh, Necrons are going to be doing. One of the best units in the game right now. Very durable, hard to kill, takes a lot of resources to deal with. Got two units of 10 Warriors. Then I have uh, two units of five Flayed Ones, sweet built-in Deep Strike. And then a Triarch Stalker with the heavy Gauss Cannon. Yeah, the twin heavy Gauss Cannon. Not really seen those too often, so I'm sure we'll be talking about that. And then I have uh, five Canoptic Scarab Swarms. Nice little screen. Two Ghost Arcs. And then finally, in the Supreme Command himself, it is the Supreme Commander of the Necrons. He's the Silent King. 
Awesome. So that's a really unique, interesting Necron list. We haven't seen anything like that from the tournament results or from just people online playing. Even you yourself have been running different Necron lists. I know a lot of people are high and mighty on the uh, custom traits to give your army a your whole army obsec in a pregame move for six inches. I'm sure we'll talk about why you've not gone that route. And then I've seen a lot of people doing like big bricks of 20 warriors spammed out with the Silent King. I know you experimented with that yourself a little bit. So I'm really curious to see why you've departed from those two directions and gone for this from an overall design philosophy. Absolutely. So why don't I start off first with uh, the Custom Dynasty? I think Custom Dynasty is extremely strong. Those two traits plus six-inch pregame move means that either you can, if you're going first, you're immediately into the center of the board, your opponent has to deal with all these threats that you're throwing at them, and then um, if you go second, can very easily deploy on the line, go back into terrain so you're not getting shot up on turn one. Very powerful custom trait, and then you have the OPSEC one as well, making things like wraiths and scarabs, all sorts of really tough, durable units, annoying to deal with, and controlling the objectives in the middle of the table. So I think that's that's a very strong way to play. What I found in my test games was that at the end of the day, it just doesn't do a tremendous amount of damage. So until you get into melee with those wraiths and the scorepeg destroyers and whatever else you're running, you are taking your opponent's full brunt of his power those first two turns usually. And I think against some of those tougher armies out there, uh, especially the Marine factions, factions like Grey Knights, uh, which we played on the Art of War stream, and then other Necron shooting builds um, that, are, that are using a lot of these warriors, I think you're going to struggle to um, have enough survive that you then can win the late game. So I have actually shied away from that. Instead, I've gone for Novak because I am all about the damage. I think the damage that Novak provides, that sweep plus one to charges, making them more reliable, especially out of Deep Strike, um, and then also that extra AP really does transform some of these units like Flayed Ones and even the basic warriors into hard-hitting melee combat units. Um, in addition to that, they also have, in my opinion, the best stratagem that Necrons have access to, and that's one CP plus one attack for a unit. So in my test games, I've been using that pretty reliably on my Necron warrior units. So all of a sudden, 20 warriors, usually you don't have this whole squad attacking, but maybe like 10, 12 of them are attacking. Would only be 10, 12 attacks normally, but all of a sudden, that uh, you're looking at 20, 24 attacks, and the Silent King, of course, is buffing them, giving them reroll wounds. So AP1, reroll wounds, they actually do a tremendous amount of damage. And in one of the games I played against Mr. Mark Perry to demonstrate this, he ended up consolidating into a warrior brick with some Thunderwolves, and um, I ended up popping the plus one attack, and um, I ended up picking them up, picking up three of them out of the five, so pretty much crippling the unit. So I think overall... Um, I just prefer having the damage up front. Now, in terms of why I'm going, another interesting choice that I've made here is actually going with the Silent King. Um, a lot of people, I've seen some lists where they're running like 80 to 100 warriors, not even worrying about the Silent King, just doubling down on all this obsec. Now, I think that's still a very solid way to play. I just think with the extra damage you get from Novak and those reroll hits and wounds that you're getting from the Silent King, the efficiency is through the roof on your uh, Necron warriors. And um, I don't think you need as much. The other thing is without the five-up invuln from the Chronomancer, your warriors do just die. And even with the five-up invuln, there's a lot of armies in the game, and I'm sure we're going to get to this, but Sisters of Battle, Vanguard Vets from White Scars or Blood Angels, they are putting out such a volume of attacks, you don't, you're not even surviving with that five-up invuln. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day... I actually want to put more resources elsewhere. I want just enough warriors to help me control the middle of the board, 
But then I want those warriors to be as efficient as possible with adding other tools. In this case, the Silent King. He's the all-around toolkit. He's good at everything in the game. Shooting, melee, he's got the psychic defense. And then he also has powerful abilities like Fight Last that have been tremendous in the games that I've played uh, in testing. Yeah, all that makes sense. I, I definitely have reached the same conclusions. I played one game with the custom dynasty of free game move six inches and obsec on the whole army. And I really did feel like my army couldn't kill anything. It was obsec, it was durable, it was fast. And that's going to get you most of the way there. And against a lot of armies, it'll get you the whole way there. But against some armies, like we played against Grey Knights, I played Necrons against Mr. Seeks himself. And I just couldn't kill anything. So over time, I lost the attrition war. And even though I took a huge primary lead in the early turns, being obsec on all the objectives, by the end of the game, I was just out of stuff because it wasn't, it was tough, but it wasn't, I'm going to stand up to your opponent's army for five turns tough. And that's really where you fall short because you're not doing damage to reduce the amount of attacks you're taking later on. You're just taking the full 2,000 points pretty much over and over and over again. As far as the warrior builds go, I think you hit the nail on the head too. The, uh, I personally, with my coaching and my list design, are now highly encouraging and recommending everyone take tools to specifically one-shot 20 warriors reliably through the five-up interval. So, and I don't mean like mathematically I kill 20 warriors. I mean mathematically I kill 30 warriors. So when dice happen and I'm playing Siegs, I still kill 20 warriors. So uh, this is a great kind of counter-meta approach where it's like obviously level one of Necrons is take big break of warriors, resurrect them, make everyone's life hell. And level two is, okay, people tech for that. What can I now adapt my army to? And I guess that's what your army is trying to do here. Yeah, absolutely. So for a while, I had been running the two bricks of warriors, um, giving them the chronomancer buff pretty much every turn, getting them into the middle of the table by turn three and just controlling it from there. And eventually, if my opponent was able to finish them off, it was fine because my late game with the Silent King, they just weren't able to do enough. And I racked up enough points at that, uh, at that stage of the game. But what I found recently playing against two of what we consider the best armies in the game, Sisters of Battle and White Scars, is that, yes, um, you're going to be able to contest the middle even against those powerful melee armies, things like Repentia, Vanguard Vets, Blade Guard flying at you. You can still control it. It's just, are you going to have enough of a punch late game? And that's what I found, especially against the White Scars, is I just need a little bit more late game and I need a little bit of more reserve action. Uh, being able to, especially against Marines, pull them apart, deal with their screening units, and then get into their backfield and take it over, I think that's especially crucial against an army like White Scars, where they want most of their army around those buffing characters like the Lieutenant, who's giving off OBSEC, um, or the uh, Khan, who's giving off plus one to wound. Without those those buffs, White Scars actually don't hit quite as hard as they as they usually do, and uh, John Lennon, for instance, isn't taking a Chapter Master, so there's less rerolls to hit there. So... What am I trying to do here with this list? I brought the one brick of warriors because there are some factions in the game that just cannot deal with 20 warriors, especially when you have re resurrection abilities like Repair Barge from the Ghost Arcs. If you try and just whittle them down over time, it's you're not going to really do anything. I'm going to spend the one CP a turn and bring back D6 of them. And even if I roll the one, I'm still just getting value back over time, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, you could take the Technomancer, and I've tried him out. I just didn't feel he was worth it as much. Um, so I think just the Ghost Arcs, that's plenty to stop people from just trying to whittle you down. And then I think the um, Veil of Darkness is so, so powerful a tool. Being able to redeploy up to 40 Gauss Reaper shots um, into your opponent's backfields or onto multiple objectives, that is such a powerful tool. I think you do have to have at minimum one brick of 20, but I don't think you need to go crazy with them, honestly. The 10 mans do quite a bit of damage, especially with the Silent King nearby for the full rerolls. And you can very cheaply put them into reserve. You can put three 10-man squads into reserve for only two CP, that's strategic reserve. 
bring them in. All right, 10 man comes down, kill an intercessor squad. Now there's no more screening unit over there. Marines don't have triple layers of screens or even double layers in most cases. So that opens up uh, things like in my list, the flayed ones to come in the next turn. Get into combat, 8-inch charge out of Deep Strike. Could spend a reroll because, once again, that Silent King is giving you so many command points, and it's only single battalion. And um, you're just able to take over people's backfield, even if they put a lot of pressure on the center of the board. It sounds to me like you've really countered for the elite meta that we're facing. Armies just aren't screening as much as they used to. Um, I'm not really sure what that is. Maybe it's just because the there's not... Everything in the game went up in points compared to 8th edition, and you're going to cut your crap, essentially, instead of your real units, I guess, making that transition. So we're just seeing fewer and fewer screens. And elites, Marines being such an elite army and being such a prominent part of the meta, then you know they just don't really have screening units in the first place. So I really like that you're trying to capitalize on that. I try to do the same thing with my list, design philosophy with reserve manipulation. So you've taken a lot of slightly unorthodox units here. Uh, double Catacomb Command Barge is something I haven't seen before. Triox Stalker, what even is that? Five-man flayed ones. Uh, and you're not taking things like mass scarabs, which I know you have been, and it's been very effective for you. So what's led you down this path? Yeah, absolutely. I think, obviously, once again, scarabs with that five-up invuln from the Chronomancer are one of the most durable units in the entire game. Um, they're especially powerful at smoking, uh, soaking up smite damage, which is something that Necrons don't really want to deal with. There's a lot of mortals outside of uh, shooting or melee attacks. So... I think Scarabs are great. The problem is, once again, they need that Chronomancer buff. And when you're running a whole bunch of bricks of nine Scarabs and you're running multiple bricks of 20 Warriors, you're, the Chronomancers are working overtime to try and provide the buffs to what they need to. So I found that I wasn't actually actually able to use the Scarabs as I wanted them because I had to keep leaving the invuln on the Warriors against those fast threats like uh, Advance and Charge uh, Vanguard Vets. So what, what can I do instead? Well, that's where the Flayed Ones come in is they don't need the invuln buff, they go into reserve for free, so I don't have to spend any command points for them, and they actually do quite a bit more damage than the scarabs. And what I found in a lot of my testing was even sending in nine scarabs into a unit I wanted to kill, um, at the end of the day, it was, I sent them into five sisters in a game against Nick, and this was turn one, I needed domination, I wanted to hold the objective, take them off of it, and I popped the plus one um, CP for plus one attack, five attacks each in, for these scarabs, and I killed four sisters. It felt great. <laughs> so, and, and this has come up in many of my testing games, is they, they just don't do as much damage as they should on paper with those sixes auto-wounding. So why don't I just go for, save some points there, not put as much emphasis on the Chronomancer buffs and get to put those points elsewhere, and then bring in a cheaper unit like Flayed Ones that can actually do that damage, come in, trade, and pick up a unit, um, especially with those Novak buffs. So that's kind of where I'm thinking, is I want to, I want less Chronomancers. I had been running three for a while. That's 240 points into three models that basically have no offense because it's so unreliable with uh, just one shot from the Entropic Lance, um, even though it's a, a decent weapon. And I just found I wasn't getting enough value out of them um, over the context of the game. I just had them kind of sitting there putting the buffs out. But once I sent the units out and they started doing what they wanted to do, it was actually hard to then keep putting the five-up invulnerable buff on them without putting the Chronomancers at risk. So... I've actually wanted to scale back the Chronomancers and have stronger tools elsewhere. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You, when I when you see the obsec horde of warriors and scarabs buffed by Chronomancers, the Chronomancers are, as you said, 240 points for three of them that don't do anything besides buff your units. So if you, you're kind of going for a different design philosophy where you're taking better units that don't need to be buffed, 
essentially like the warrior blob is the 260 cost plus the 80 points for the chronomancer and that's you know 340 is a lot for 20 warriors especially in a meta where people can one shot them and then scarabs they're solid um there's nice screens and i do like that you have a little five man there they're really useful for objective holding and whatnot but as offensive tools they just don't really get it done and then when you factor in the scarabs are what 135 for nine of them plus 80 for the chronomancer it's like this is just too many points so totally makes sense to me what about your triox stalker and catacomb command barges okay well this this leads me into uh like you just mentioned i want more things that are just tough natively on their data sheet and i think the best place to get that is stuff with quantum shielding in my test games i've been incredibly impressed with quantum shielding especially against armies like marines and powerful shooting units like um plasma inceptors they do not appreciate quantum shielding and so um, I first originally tried out the Ghost Arcs and loved them. Um, I started with one, um, went up to two, because they're great screening units. They have large base sizes, so they can help protect my warriors from being charged or the Silent King. Uh, they can also, because of their speed and fly, go tag things that I want to shut down the shooting or force them to only shoot into the Ghost Arc if they can shoot into combat. And so I really love um, the Ghost Arc utility there for doing that. Um, it's also something I can throw out into the center objective, and it's probably going to trade places with the Scarabs depending on what I'm playing against. If I'm playing against a Psyker heavy army, I'm going to put the Scarabs up first, let them soak the smites. If not, I can put the uh, Ghost Arc out there and go ahead and soak up some shooting damage, force my opponent to commit his shooting, then respond in kind with my own. So um, I want Quantum Shielding. Where else can I get Quantum Shielding? Well, I looked at the Triax Darker. I want something that can, is durable enough that can sit on a backfield objective and still do damage from range. I thought originally about uh, bringing in a Doomsday Arc, but the problem there, and I've tried out Doomstalkers as well, is it's just so unreliable. If you're playing in a big event, eight, nine, ten rounds, you just can't afford to be putting 200, you know, 190 plus points into units um, whose shooting is unreliable, especially if that's going to be your main um, range damage. So instead of going with the 190 points for the Doomsday Arc, I've instead um, coalesced around the idea of doing uh, the Triarch Stalker. And his benefit is that he also um, has a uh, rule on his data sheet that once you hit a unit, you get reroll ones to hit from the rest of your Necron units. So that includes now my Command Barges and the Silent King, who normally wouldn't have those rerolls. So I think, and because those are Ballistic Skill 2 plus units, it makes them even more efficient, pretty much automatically hitting. And then um, I can go th from there with the wound rolls. But I really like that extra efficiency. And once again, it with the uh, twin heavy Goss, it's 30-inch range. I got plenty of range, can easily sit on my backfield objective. And if my opponent wants to shoot at it, and I'm not really uh, needing the Ghost Arcs to survive, I'll just use the 1 CP strat, give it the 4-up invuln, and with Transhuman, um, or in this case, what is it, Quantum Shielding, you're not really taking as much damage um, as your opponent would want to do to it. Um, and then finally, the command barges. So once again, they also have quantum shielding and they're nine wound characters. They're very durable. Um, the shooting one has the minus one damage warlord trait. The other one has reroll wounds. And what I'm using them for is late game pieces. And this heads into uh, secondaries, uh, which I'm sure we'll touch on. But Code of Combat is, in my opinion, the best of the Necron secondaries. You get three points for every unit a noble kills. I have now three serious um, nobles in my list. Two of them are the Command Barges, the other is the Silent King. I'm doing quite a bit of damage. That's pretty much an automatic secondary at that point, um, especially with the Silent King being the auto-blow-up and cripple units. You finish them off with the Command Barges if you need to. But 
essentially, I want a really durable late game pieces that Marine characters are not um, easily beating one on one. And that's what the command barges provide here. That makes a lot of sense. I actually really like command barges, and I think quantum shielding is, is a great tool to build your list around from a durability perspective. On a, on a little bit of a side note, have you considered like spamming out quantum shielding, kind of like the old armies and 8th edition sort of used to with Doomsday Arcs, Ghost Arcs, command barges, and Triax Stalkers, and, and really just going all down that rabbit hole? I can definitely see a list like that existing, and um, we've been asked about this in the War Room when we've done Necron Clinics. Um, I think the best way to do it is actually running 10-man units of warriors and a bunch of Ghost Arcs, and then you'll have some Triax Stalkers um, and then some Reserve Threats, but... I I'm just in love. I have a love affair with the Silent King. I'm going to bin it here, Nick. Um, I just I cannot drop him from a list. He's been so crucial in every single game. He's just such a problem for opponents to deal with. And even when they try and deal with him, if they swing and miss, the king's going to lop off their head. And Nick has experienced this. All right. I was not a believer in the Silent King. I was like, 450 is just too much for one model. That's just not how ninth edition works. But Siegs has completely convinced me otherwise. So. Siegs, talk about the Mac Daddy himself, your lord and savior. Give us the rundown, this man. All right, so obviously he's a beast in himself. Um, he gets to benefit from obscuring terrain because he's only 16 wounds. He has two Meneers that help him, um, that add an extra 10 wounds. So first of all, it's very easy to protect him from uh, enemy shooting. I tend to deploy most of my army be behind the center ruin or whatever ruin I have available in my deployment zone. And then I don't need to actually use his offense early game if my opponent has incredible shooting. Uh, say, for instance, you're playing against guard with a bunch of tank commanders and some Lehman Russes, just tons of demolisher cannons all over the place. Yeah, probably not going to commit the Silent King early against that. I'll let them trade against my warriors um, and the scarabs and the ghost arcs and then send the Silent King out uh, to start whittling them down, especially with those uh, annihilation beams being flat six damage and high AP. So usually I let my opponent... Um, I like throwing one durable unit into the middle of the table, forcing my opponent to commit shooting units or a melee unit, and then trading up um, from there uh, to get the ball rolling. And why is the Silent, so Silent King so good overall? Well, for the 450 points, like Nick said, a lot of points, but he brings every single tool you could possibly want in a 9th edition meta. So he's got great range shooting. Um, he's the synergy with the, um, the Triar, the Meniers, and the Auto Wound Strat. I pretty much use that most games. Um, say, for instance, I'm playing in Space Marines with the Plasma Scepters. I'm going to go ahead and roll the Meneers, roll the hit. First one, I'll just see if it wounds. Um, if it does, awesome. I might even spend a reroll if it doesn't. And then I'll auto-wound the second one and just try and pick up two Plasma Scepters immediately. Or, for instance, you know, a Tank Commander. And then um, he's got a lot of little shots as well. His melee, he's an absolute beast in melee with about 13 attacks, all with uh, good AP. And uh, two of his attack profiles have multi-damage. Um, I just had a game in the War Room against John Lennon's White Scars, where the Silent King made a charge into some Vanguard vets. John rolled a little below average on his four-up invuln saves, but I picked up nine of the ten Vanguard vets with the Silent King and uh, really put myself in a very good position. Um, in addition to that, he also has access to Anti-Psychic. This has been crucial in matchups like against Thousand Suns or Demons, where they really rely on the power of their um, Psychic. Um, so either having access to the Zerikin strat for the four up deny or his just once per game, once, uh, per, um, psychic phase deny, very, very powerful interrupts your, um, your opponent's ability to get off their key spells. Usually they have to put their psychers a lot farther back than they'd want to. And in that case, they're probably not doing as many offensive spells into your, um, vulnerable Necron warriors or whatnot. Um, and then finally that fight last aura, I think fight last, um, and if you have access to it, fight first as well, to a lesser extent, 
are two of the most powerful rules you can have in this game. Ninth edition, as we've seen, has become a very melee-centric edition. And just having access to something like a Fight Last um, aura is super powerful if your opponent's trying to engage you, especially into the Silent King. Um, it's really hard for melee armies, even powerful ones like White Scars, to just be like, all right, I'm going to commit some units into the Silent King. You, you might lose one or two of those um, you know, say for instance, you send two characters and Vanguard Vet Squad in. I could go after the split attacks against the characters. Maybe I pick them both up, and you just have Vanguard Vets trying to kill the Sign King, and they might not do it. So, I think that you either have to overcommit so many resources into the Silent King, and even then, it's not a guarantee you kill him, um, or you just ignore him. And this is what um, I think people are starting to realize: is it's probably better to try and deal with the other stuff than deal with him. But that lets me be even more reckless with him and send him into the TFE army because at the end of the day, I'm trying to spend that one CP to auto-explode him and just finish off key characters um, and remaining units. And obviously all that goes towards code of combat points as well. So I think he's just the ultimate toolkit package and he's just such a problem for your opponent to deal with in every phase. Yeah, he really is just a jack-of-all-trades, buffs your army and is a beat stick himself. Although he's not like... Mortarian levels of damage or Mad Magnus with the mortal wound shooting aspect. As far as 450 point models goes, his offense is probably one of the lower ends, but his value doesn't come in from there. It's from the sum of all of its parts, all the utility he gives you and all the buffing and the fact that he still does damage. Along with the fact that he opens up secondary options, which we will cut touch on in a bit. But I want to go more conceptually on how you actually use the Silent King with respect to this army. Does he just hang out like amidst your army Tossing boss, you know, giving the rerolls, rerolls to hit and warriors, rerolls to hit and shooting, and rerolls to win in close combat, uh, denying stuff here and there, or is he just driving forward like a, a big distraction card effects? How I tend to like using him is against armies that have the shooting to at least start whittling down the maneuvers and then starting to put damage on him. Um, what I tend to prefer is using him conservatively those first two turns. And then sending him out turns three, four, and five when my opponent uh, doesn't quite have the ability to deal with him, either because there's a bunch of warriors in their face or other reserve threats, um, or because he's in their lines or he's about to be in their lines and standing on that center objective, um, about to get into um, you know whatever they have as their remaining screens. So I tend to not use him too aggressive early game just because it's pretty easy for my army to start whittling down um, what can actually do damage to him. And conversely, by the time it hits turns you know, three uh, at the latest, I'm already in the middle of the table with most of my army. And if I have Ghost Arcs flying around, I've got the Warriors uh, with the Invuln up, it's really hard for my opponent to say, also, I'm going to commit my whole shooting phase and also potentially um, some of my key melee units to just try and pick up the Silent King. Um, and that kind of you know, difficult choices that I'm offering my opponent is one of the things that I've really enjoyed about the Silent King is is a really tough decision for your opponent to, to try and commit to him because it's very hard to guarantee, hey, I'm just going to pick him up. Um, there's not a lot of things in the game that are just, all right, he's just dead. Uh, even Repentia, as Nick saw, isn't a guarantee <laughs> with the exploding sixes. And if that's not a guarantee, there's very few units in the game that are going to do it um, you know, just automatically. So I like that aspect of it. Um, against certain armies, so for instance, in the game I played against John's White Scars, I tended to early game... I kind of used him as more of a screening unit because I actually wanted John to put his resources into that and not my warriors and not my scarabs. Because outside the plasma interceptors and then the Vanguard vets, once they get that extra damage, he doesn't actually really have 
things that can just pick up a brick of really durable five up invuln scarabs uh, or the warriors. So I wanted to, if he wants to deal with the Silent King, he's basically trading away one of those three or four units that can actually deal with the with the other board control units that I have. So I usually like offering that hard choice against uh, some of the best lists. Yeah, I think that that factors in really well. Just your Silent King is almost like a more durable brick of warriors in its own right. Like the types of units that you take to kill twenty warriors in one shot through a five up invul with like consistency are the types of units that can damage the Silent King. Typically armies don't have too many of those units. Those are expensive. They are they require a lot of buffs. They are they're what you're centered your army around. And you don't have multiple centers to your army. You know, you have one or two of those, maybe three if in a really powerful list. But against like your army, you want to use those each to trade for a big warrior brick or something. You can't be sacrificing those resources for the Silent King. So you're almost using the Silent King as bait, trying to get him to use like those 10 Vanguard vets or six plasma scepters to attempt to kill a Silent King. On average, he probably doesn't even one-shot you. But even if he does, auto explode, get some damage value out of that. You can still get your code of com- combat secondary now that you have those catacomb command barges, and those warriors will survive. So on that note, in the game you just cited against me and John, you had two units of 20 warriors and the Silent King. You've gone down to just one unit of 20 in the Silent King. I found uh, in watching you play and playing against you that the first war unit kind of takes the heat and, and does go down, but that because it takes so much resources to kill the one, the second unit really drives home to victory. So now that you've gone down to one unit, you've kind of lost that secondary wave of warriors. Uh, you still have outflanking warriors and whatnot, but it's very functionally different as a unit. So do you think you missed that, or what's the theory here? So the theory here is I actually don't want to play that trading game um, as much against these top-level players um, because it it can go poorly. Um, there are instances where, especially against these best marine lists, where you're seeing double two units of plasma scepters, two units of vanguard vets, or whatever blood angels have sanguinary guard, you're seeing like four units that can actually pick up warriors. And what's the? I could either continue playing the trading game and just hope that my screening is perfect, but that puts a lot of stress on my movement phases, um, especially if I'm playing, you know, seven eight rounds um, in an event. Um, I want to put less pressure on myself there. So instead of going for the multiple warrior bricks, I have the one. That's plenty. It's going to always get the five up invuln buff as long as it's alive. And it forces my opponent to actually have to save those resources trying to deal with it. I have the Silent King. But now what I'm trying to do is actually put much more pressure on my opponent's screening units and destroying his backfield and his primary in his backfield. Um, if he wants to defend his own backfield, he's going to have to commit more of those resources um, away from the center of my army. And if he commits totally to the center, then I get to take over his backfield. So I'm actually playing more of the, if you're going to actually contest the middle of the table, where there's no guarantee that you are certainly going to win, um, kind of draw them into the middle of the table and then destroy their backfield. I think that's more reliable game plan overall against these top-level armies, especially against Marines. Makes perfect sense to me. We'll definitely focus a lot on the individual-specific Marine matchups over in Part 2. But before we get into that, I need to ask some John Damaris-style questions here. And before we even get into that, I need to leave room for a quick commercial break. So we'll see you guys in just a second. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges. So you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. 
Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. All right, and we're back. So I want to kind of take a step back. Necrons are a relatively brand new army, and unlike Space Marines, who are also a new army, they don't look anything like they did a few months ago. The Necron Codex is full of new units, new playstyles, new rules, whereas the 8th edition predecessor was pretty vanilla. So to make sure everyone's on the same page, let's go through some of what Necrons do as an army. Like, how do reanimation protocols work and why you're building around them? And then also you have this thing called, uh, I don't remember, that thing you do before the battle rounds that changes every turn. Protocols. Protocols. I'm good at that. So uh, walk us through those and what your strategy is for using these rules. Okay, yeah, absolutely. So reanimation protocols was changed fundamentally. Um, instead of one roll, uh, bringing back a model at the start of your turn, Instead, um, you do reanimation protocols after the end of every attack sequence um, from shooting or melee attacks. So it means if you were going to try and do chip damage to warriors, say, all right, I just killed six from you know shooting some uh, random autobolt rifles at them. Now I get the chance to reanimate, and so it could potentially bring back a couple warriors there. Um, or if you know, same thing if if uh, you know a bunch of scarabs go in, you kill three of them in a volley. I get to roll then 12 dice on fives. If I roll enough of them, if I roll at least four fives, I get to bring at least one base back. So basically um, for single wound models, it's extremely powerful um, because you just get to roll that many dice and any fives, especially warriors re-rolling ones, you then get to bring back a model for that. Why is this particularly powerful? Because there's no restriction other than being within coherency uh, when you bring them back. So you don't have to bring all the models back. Say, for instance, I get you know four models back after I lost six, uh, the type average that Nick loves. And uh, so I go ahead and place them. I have to place them in coherency, but I don't have to place all of them within um, coherency of a model that existed at the start of that phase. So I can actually start slowly stringing them towards new objectives. This is very, very powerful against armies that want to do that chip damage, where they're going to kill six or ten of them in a go, but not the whole unit, and then you get to reanimate. I can very easily position a warrior unit, especially those 20 mans, where they're close enough to two objectives, even if they don't start touching them. If my opponent starts trying to do damage to those 20 warriors, all of a sudden I'm reanimating onto the objectives. Um, this is also very powerful in your command phase, where you have things like the res orb, or um, the repair barge, or even the technomancer's rights reanimation. Bringing back models in your command phase, and then if you are scoring particular secondaries um, or primary points at the end of your command phase, you can actually get points out of that when you otherwise wouldn't have and punish your opponent for trying to deal um, with your OPSEC and your um, your warrior bricks usually. So I think reanimation is an incredibly powerful rule. It works best with the single wound models, but it also works um, reasonably well with multi-wound models if your opponent can kill like three, four models at once, but not the whole unit. So if they kill like four or five scarab bases, you roll so many dice that you're going to get a couple back. I think it does work there. It's just tougher on the more expensive warrior uh, units like destroyers. It's not quite as reliable to get any back. Um, it's also very binary on those larger units, whereas like warriors, you get nice incremental value. You lose 10 warriors, you get 30, three or four of them back. If you're Richard Sealer, you get eight of them back, you know, normal stuff. Um, whereas like destroyers or rates or any of those types of units, you lose two rates, you roll six dice, you roll two, two, two fives, and the rest weren't fives. It's like, well, blew that chance 
And that's, uh, you're like inviting bad dice to happen with those multi wound models. So I do think focusing on spamming out those one wounders for reanimation protocols makes the most sense. I also want to talk about your dynast- dynastic protocols. Am I saying that right? Command protocols. I was close. So um, they are, uh, you're basically your mono faction or mono detachment. Like, you know, how if everyone's ultramarines, you get your your super doctrine where you can move and fire no penalty and you can fall back and shoot and all that. Iron hands used to be broken, all that jazz. Necrons have this weird... Uh, I, I lost again. What's it called? All right, so it's command protocols. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to just take over for Nick. And um, what this is, is if you have a pure dynasty army, excluding dynastic agents, in this case, the Silent King is excluded, so the rest of the army is Novak. So I do get access to the command protocols, and as long as you have a noble on the battlefield, in this case I have three of them, um, and they're very unlikely to die um, in those first couple turns, certainly not all three, I'm going to be getting the buff. Um, Now, in order to get it, you're within six inches of a um, dynasty character, you'll get a particular benefit. And I think command protocols overall, none of the buffs are crazy powerful, they're nothing like white scars plus one damage in Assault Doctrine, but they're all reasonable buffs, and I'll go through some of some of my favorites in just a second. But what makes the Silent King so powerful in interacting with these command protocols is that he has, first of all, on his uh, he, he's your warlord, and so he gets the warlord trait, the Triarch's Will, and that lets him pick um, four of the command protocols, and you can double one of them. So instead of having just putting five into play, you get to pick four and double whichever one you think is the most powerful. And you do this before the game, before you know what your opponent... uh, You'll know your opponent, but you won't know what deployment and and stuff like that is. Um, So based on his list, uh, his or list, you can figure out what exactly is the key uh, protocol that I'm going to need. Maybe it's going to be fall back and shoot at minus one to hit. Maybe it's going to be shoot and still be able to do an action. Maybe it's, uh, in my case, the Novak uh, protocol, the Hungry Void, which for Novak... Uh, lets me benefit from both of the protocols instead of just one of the directives. Um, so there's a lot of options. The other thing the Silent King does is for whichever ones you don't pick, and because you're using his Warlord Treat, you've picked four, you're not picking two of them. In At the start of any of the battle rounds, you could swap into the one ones you don't pick. So for instance, I tend to save something like fall ba- um, the ability to fall back and shoot. I tend to save that one and swap into it if I ever need it. Um, just so because I want it during a turn, I really need it. Same for the one where um, you can do an action, uh, I still shoot and do an action. I also like swapping into that one if I pick something like Scramblers. Um, being able to just have redeploy uh, you know, a 20-man break of Warriors and be like, cool, I'm in your backfield now. I'm going to go ahead and swap into, at the start of the battle round, swap into the ability to shoot and still do an action. Perfect synergy right there. So the Silent King, like I said, that Warlord trait and his data sheet ability really make them flexible. And I think that gives the command protocol, it really demonstrates the power of the command protocols when you have the Silent King. Otherwise, they're not quite as useful as they could be um, because you're essentially relying on the turn that you need the particular buff is going to be the turn you actually need it. But I think at the end of the day, um, the Silent King actually synergizes so well with them that fall back and shoot, the ability to do actions and shoot the Nova, the one protocol, the Hungry Void, where I can get extra AP on sixes to wound and importantly, plus one strength. Um, so that brings warriors up to strength five. If I spend one CP on the stratagem to make a core unit get plus one strength, I could bring up to strength six. Very important in a meta where there's a lot of T5 bodies out there right now. So 
Um, I tend to never use the shooting one, the one where you can either ignore cover in half range or get extra AP on sixes. Tend to never use that one. Usually that's the other one I put um, that I don't pick and I just leave it out. Um, and then the other one I'm not quite um, you know, sold on is plus one to living, uh, living metal or uh, a re-roll on one of your reanimation rolls. I don't think that those two are particularly good. Um, but usually I put one in a slot where I'm going to trade into either the fall back and shoot or the uh, shoot and do an action. And then the the one where you're trying that only buff shooting, I just tend to ignore that one because it's not really needed. AP2 is what most of this army does or better. I, you don't really need to be AP3 in this meta. Yeah, it's a very unique concept. Those I'm going to mess it up again. Command protocols, I did it. Really unique concept. And I'm kind of, I, I like the way they did it. I wish they were a little bit more powerful, to be honest, because you do have to go really far out of your way with list design to make use of them. Um, and Sieg's list, it's actually very natural. He wants the, he's built around the Silent King and these command barges, so it's very easy to do. But a lot of Necronless aren't trying to take nobles and whatnot. But that's a thought for another day. I also want to talk about your design philosophy from a command points perspective. A lot of lists typically, you know, take multiple detachments to get various rules, sacrificing, um, cp to get better units you have tried to max out your cp like you're one battalion and you have a silent king who gives you a bonus three uh which basically pays for itself essentially um so you got a lot of command points and necron strats are from my view they are just like quality of life upgrades you know like i'm gonna give myself a plus one attack here which is very good for one cp or i'm gonna give myself this little rule here for one cp like warriors auto wounding on sixes to hit with their goss reapers and none of that's bad like those are all great strats but they're also one cp and just like you know do you really need 12 command points to run this army why do you have so many instead of taking better units yeah absolutely that's a great question i think at the end of the day all those command points and like nick said i start with 12 he has a single battalion um my warlord is the silent king who, because he's in Supreme Command, basically cancels out the cost of the battalion. And then on his data sheet, he gives me an additional three. So start at that nice sweet 15 spot before I start spending pregame. So the first thing it lets me do is very easily just spend a whole bunch of command points pregame to buff uh, my other characters. So I have uh, my free relic, which is the Voltaic Staff, and then I buy the Veil of Darkness, and then I buy the, um, the Blood Scythe. And then I also buy extra Warlord traits. So I buy the minus one damage for the shooting command uh, shooting co uh, command barge. And then I also buy the uh, reroll wounds for the melee command barge. So I'm spending a whole bunch pregame already, and it's barely even denting my command points. In addition to that, like Nick said, the most powerful strat I have access to is the Novak one, plus one attack. Very powerful. Not always going to be needed, uh, but super nice. I tend to use the one CP for plus one strength on my warriors occasionally, uh, depending on what protocol I'm in and what I'm fighting against. I also tend to use the auto wound, one CP to auto wound a shooting attack on my uh, Miniers for the Silent King. Um, I also like using the Tesla strat from the Voltaic Staff. Go ahead and uh, hit something, and then on four ups, I can do mortals to everything nearby. Very powerful uh, against these armies that want to cluster around a couple key characters. But, and then I also like using um, my warrior bricks uh, on, the, on those Gauss Reapers. Sixes to hit are auto wounds, especially powerful when the Silent King is there, um, giving you those full rerolls. And um, just to finish the thought, the other command protocol I didn't mention that I use heavily is the ability to set to defend. 
So I can overwatch on fives with full rerolls to hit from the Silent King. Very, very powerful, making charging those warriors. You need something else to charge them and have the opportunity to do so to soak the overwatch, which means I pre pretty much get a free kill out of it um, and might get a second one if they don't finish off the warriors. So, but uh, heading back to um, heading back to the command points, at the end of the day, it's a safety net for me. I always have command points to do exactly what I want. There's no mystery. If I say, for instance, the warrior brick is brought down to, you know, eight models, I lost 12 this phase, that's going to be a failed leadership check. Nah, two CP, auto pass, done. Uh, my opponent is trying to engage me on multiple fronts in combat. I got those two CP, no problem for the interrupt, um, even late game. So what I'm using the, com the, protocol, the um, command points for is a very, very nice safety net for my army where I can always accomplish exactly what I want to. There's no, I have to penny pinch with my CP where I, I have to give up this powerful strat this turn because I'm really going to need to interrupt the next turn. I know I'm going to be able to do exactly what I want to every single turn. That's the strength of having so many command points. Makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of people kind of don't really value that approach to list building. And also as a as a competitor, I definitely look at late game as a time where my opponent's low on CP and that's when I can kind of save my CP if I can get my C if I can go in turns four and five with command points, even like three or four and my opponent's out. Now I can run ramshackle because I don't have to worry about uh interrupts or anything funky like CP rerolls ruining my day, anything like that. And the fact that you just can have a consistent amount of CP because again you're generating one per turn like everybody else. So really your 15 command point army starts at 20. You just and you're only your strats cost one, two at most, you're gonna have CP forever. And I've watched it happen like turn five rolls around, sees a guy like four CP from whatever. Just have fun over there. So um it's it's a really nice quality of life upgrade. And you don't really need more detachments. Like you're not tight on slots or anything. Your elites are kind of crowded but you get six in a battalion for some reason so like that's good to go uh, i could see necron armies maxing out their fast attacks but that's just not the approach you're going for here so it's the non-issue i i love it so this kind of brings me to uh one of the final thoughts here uh when you're designing lists you always want to have a good plan for missions so in general that's that's what secondaries you actively look to seek with your list design and then how do you plan on playing the primary which you know you're not as good of a necron army as you could be for primary play because you're not everything is obsec so what's your approach to the mission design here okay yeah so for the mission itself um once again most of my damage is mid-range i have a ton of goss reaper shots and then i have a lot of stuff coming in from reserve um most of the the kind of custom dynasty obsec um, army does engage in all fronts and those kind of board control secondaries extremely well because they want to spread out, deal with your opponent in detail um, rather than be in a tight brick. Whereas my units tend to synergize extremely well with each other, so they tend to be pretty close. And so this army doesn't do something like engage in all fronts, which is has become one of the standard picks for a lot of people, um, just to. It, you put a secondary in your own hands, you're able to get a nice 10, you know, 13 points out of it. That's a solid place to be in. I tend to want to be in the middle of the table, or at least close enough where I'm within six of the center. So it's not as easy for me to in, do engage in all fronts. This list um, that I'm going with now with the flayed ones has a bit more play in that because I have the 10 mans coming down. They're going to kill a screen in my opponent's backfield or in one of the table quarters uh, that is in my deployment zone. And then the flayed ones will come in the next turn. So I have a little bit more play on engaging all fronts, but it's not really exact. It's not really what this army is doing. I could do it in uh, certain situations. What I actually prefer from that first set of secondaries is domination, 
especially on missions with obviously an odd number of objectives where there's a middle one, I tend to get max on domination with this army because I can put so much pressure on the middle of the table that as soon as my opponent's there, they're going to be in for a rough time. Will you even take domination in like the six objective missions? Because those are definitely that iffy category. It's iffy, but because I'm bringing in those warriors from reserve and then I have Veil of Darkness access, I, and then eight inch charges if I need to make a charge onto the objective. And once again, I have the CP to reroll it if I need to. That me, makes me um, still want to take something like domination. Not always, depends on what I'm playing against, but it leaves it as an option where I don't have to take engage. Um, and Linebreaker is just something that very few people are taking. It, it's not that easy. Um, so I, you always want to have at least one secondary option from that first one because it's the secondaries that um, put it entirely in your own hands, regardless of what your opponent's doing. Number two for the second set, and this is where the Necron-specific ones come in, um, Necrons do have a board control secondary called Purge the Vermin. Great name. And um, you can't score it during the first battle round, but for every table quarter that your opponent doesn't have a unit wholly within, you get two points. The problem I found is that most of the armies, most of the top armies certainly, just have stuff all over the board. And even though I can kill a lot of the, that stuff in a single turn, it's not always easy, especially, and it's terrain dependent too. If there's good midfield terrain, it's not always easy to get the angles that I would need, or I'd have to commit a resources I typically don't want to, like say the Silent King has to now go to the side of the board. Don't really want that. So I found that it's actually not as easy to get more than 10 points out of that especially because you can't score it in the first turn. So I've shied away for that. Instead, I actually think the Code of Combat, which is the one where if a noble gets a kill, you get three points. I actually think that's by far the best Necron secondary, and I'm building, I am intentionally building around that one because I'm going to pick it pretty much every single game. Um, even with the Silent, just the Silent King, before I started playing with the Catacomb Command Barges, I was getting most of the points, usually 12 to 15 out of it. With the, with the Command Barges late game, I'm going to get the 15. So I went for guaranteed points there, and it puts a lot less pressure on my board control as well. Um, I don't really want to take while we stand with Necrons because um, the Silent King is something I'm happy to trade in this list. Happy to trade them, especially because I'm 1 CP auto-exploding near my opponent's army. I'm just getting tremendous value out of the damage he did up to that point, and then the explosion. Just uh, immense damage. So I'm happy to trade him. It just needs to be in the right circumstances. But I don't want to have to be thinking, oh, wait, he's still five points. Like, I don't really want to send him too far. I need to play a little KG. It's not really how he works in this list. Um, and then in addition to that, then the Ghost Arcs would be the other option. So that's just not a while we stand army. And I really do want those Ghost Arcs as the durable screening units. So instead, because it's in the same category, Code of Combat fills that role for me. All right, so now I have two of the three secondaries picked, no problem. Where else do we go from here? Usually I pick a kill secondary, something like bring it down, assassinate. Um, if I'm playing against Titanic units, uh, the Titan Hunters. But if I can't, say for instance, you're playing against one of those tough armies like Marines, that's where I head towards um, the action secondaries. And this is why I've moved more towards having stuff, in, more stuff in reserve, um, especially stuff that can do damage. So I have those two... Um, 10-man units of warriors that I typically use strategic reserve to put them into. And then I have the uh, two units of flayed ones. Those are what's going to do something like deploy scramblers for me. Um, and I want that built in my, into my list because Marines just don't really give up secondaries. And so you need something there designed into your list that you can achieve it uh, with not too much effort. And once again, that goes back to the synergy with the command protocols. 
late game, even if I don't get my warriors or the flayed ones into their deployment zone, I can use Veil of Darkness to get there and then use the protocol to shoot and still do an action. Yeah, it sounds like you've you've got having a really good uh, set of mission secondaries from your codex is a really nice advantage to have because basically allows you to play a different kind of game to everybody else. So I love that aspect of Necrons that you're fully embracing. And then the just different approach to getting things like oper- like going for domination instead of gauging all fronts as a mainstay is a, is a cool, unique design build and deploy scramblers with Veil of Darkness and the ability to shoot and do, do actions. It's just so strong. Typically, deploy scramblers is a nice, safe, easy 10 as a lot of people look at it, but I literally just missed it yesterday in a game against John Lennon in our war room because he very, very actively tried to keep me out of his deployment zone with his screening, and then anything that got near it, he prioritized over anything else in my list. So there are ways you can you know, prevent your opponent from getting scramblers. But if you have an ability to deep strike on like bottom of turn five, I'm just going to get this done. You know, there's there's no stopping it. So I, I love that about your army. Um, do you find that this is your list choice here is very predicated on the current meta where it's very elite? There's not like tons and tons of screens running around. Do you think if there were more screening units or just some army that's isolated just has screening units in a tournament that your list would go down a lot in value in that matchup? No, I just, that's why I have the Ghost Arcs here, is I get to play a different way. I don't actually need to use the reserve mechanics if I don't want to. Instead, I go ahead and load up those two 10-mans into the Ghost Arcs, and I have the 20-man on the board, so I can instantly put my entire army's worth of pressure onto the middle of the table, starting turn one and two, um, and from there, push them back. So, I, I, it is very much designed for a Marine meta, where Marines don't have a tremendous amount of screens, but for other armies, I don't actually have to use the reserve mechanics if I don't want to, but I want it built in specifically for Marines. Makes sense. And as you can see, like there's a lot of depths and layers to this army, very tactically flexible depending on your opponent and the situation, the specific mission. And those are the kind of armies that I personally like the most because you know sometimes you bring a rock and your opponent brings a bigger rock, so your rock's going to lose. Being able to turn your rock into paper might actually help you quite a bit here in a rock-paper-scissors analogy. But uh, this leads us into our next episode very nicely, where we're going to focus on individual matchups and how Siegs approaches every single specific matchup with his own unique set of tactics. So check that out. Uh, You can check it out on our Patreon, AOW40K. You can become a patron. You'll get access to part one of the episodes, which is free to listen to. You'll get access to a little bit earlier. Um, Usually we release it on Mondays for the public. We release it on the previous Wednesday, so about five days earlier for patrons. And you get access to part two, where Mr. Seeks is going to break down the ins and outs. You can also get this access on our brand new website, along with the Art Award Down Under Pairings podcast. You can get them together for a little bit of a discount. And uh, our website is brand new and really cool. And you should check it out. TheArtOfWar40K.com. Thanks for watching, everybody. Like the strategy discussion you heard? Want to hear more about the tactics of this list? Sign up for our Patreon at AOW40K.com, where we go deep into details of optimal play. This has been Art of War, a strategy and tactics podcast for Warhammer 40K. Hosted by Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Produced by Seamus Ronan. Find us at AOW40K.com. And of course, connect on Facebook. Just look for AOW40K. 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 Till next time.